Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I interview Curtis Wilder, a former justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Justice Wilder currently practices law with the Detroit law firm Butzel Long. Justice Wilder talks about his interesting career as a jurist, first as a trial judge, then an appellate judge, and finally a Michigan Supreme Court justice. He also discusses a very interesting appeal involving the law of wills and trusts and the rules of professional conduct. Throughout the conversation, Justice Wilder provides valuable insights on the art of appellate advocacy. Justice Curtis Wilder, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thanks, Max. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Really thrilled to have you on the show. Justice Wilder, you have a really interesting uh, background that's a little different from most of our guests. I'll give our listeners just a quick preview and note here that you have spent much of your career as a judge, first a, a trial judge, then an appeals court judge, and then finally a justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and are now back in private practice. So I'd love to talk about that today. We'll drill down some, but let's kind of work backwards. Kurt, can you tell us a bit about your practice and your firm today? Yes, I'd be happy to. I'm currently a shareholder at Butzel Long. I'm in the Detroit office. Butzel Long now has four offices in Michigan and uh, one in D.C., one in New York, about 150 lawyers. And Butzel Long, like a lot of firms that size, is a full-service firm. So I specialize in appeals, as you might expect litigation, and also I'm doing facilitation and mediation. It's been um, great to come back to Butzel Long, where I was right before I went on the bench as a circuit judge in Washtenaw County, and I started my career in Lansing with the Foster Swift firm. Uh, so I, I've been around the state quite a bit, litigating in state district courts, state circuit, court of appeals. Ironically, never argued in the Michigan Supreme Court although maybe that'll happen someday soon, <laughs> and, uh, and also litigated in, uh, in federal courts. How long have you been back in private practice? Well, I narrowly lost my election bid in 2018 by about 50,000 votes. So I went back to Butts Along in January of 2019. And it's been a, a whirlwind, really. A lot's changed with technology since I was on the other side of the bench. And so I've had to learn new technology as well as, um, you know, go after new clients. Somebody said, if, if you're bringing a, a book of business with you, you weren't a very ethical judge. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I've, uh, you know, I've been building a book of business and it, it's been, it's been exciting. Uh, the firm has been great, very supportive and uh, I have great colleagues. So you mentioned you've been litigating, you know, all over the state and in state courts and federal court and court of appeals, primarily business litigation or all areas of, of civil practice? It's all areas of civil practice. Uh, I've had appeals in the insurance realm. I've had uh, cases, both litigation and appeals and election law. Uh, I've done some employment cases. In fact, my first argument in the Sixth Circuit uh, since I've been back in private practice, uh, was an employment case. So it's it's been a hodgepodge of uh, of civil matters. I've even worked on 
uh, a few pro bono divorce matters and criminal matters. Uh, I've really taken all the years of experience that I've had and applied them in many different contexts since I've been back in private practice. And of course, I handled several mediation facilitations. I think the pandemic kind of shut off the uh, momentum that I was building in that practice, but I, I'm rebuilding that now that we're coming out of that. Yeah, that's great. And have you been doing remote mediations or in person? I was doing in person and then uh, we finished one through remote contact simply because we didn't, we had good progress and we didn't want to leave it go and we were able to get it resolved. And I'm about to embark on some remote mediation facilitation and perhaps some arbitration as well. Well, it's funny. You said it's been an adjustment getting up to speed on technology uh, now that you're on the other side of the bench. Well, I think all of us had um, a real crash course in in technology and remote technology in particular, thanks to COVID-19. So I'm not sure that you're in much of a different position than, than uh, many practitioners have been over the last year. That's probably true. And again, being at a sizable firm like Butts Along, the transition to use of technology was pretty seamless. We have a great IT staff that was able to get everybody up to speed, get everybody with the equipment that was necessary. And it is kind of odd, though, I will say, doing oral arguments sitting down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was used to doing oral arguments sitting down, but I was on the other side of the bench. That's right. That's right. You're the only one who got to be seated, right? Yes. (laughs) Or at least the side of the bench that got to be seated. Um, Now, you were on the bench... Well, for how long? More than 20 years, right? 26 and a half years. I, wow. I, I was appointed in 1992 to the Washington Circuit Court, served there until 1998. The last three years, I was the chief judge of that court. And just for our listeners, we have a lot of listeners in Michigan, but, but also throughout the country. Washtenaw County is a county in Michigan. That's where Ann Arbor is, pretty big county. And you are a circuit court judge, which is the court of general jurisdiction in Michigan. I thought there were pluses and minuses to the creation of a family court. Uh, One of the things that I realized as a trial judge who was a general jurisdiction judge when I joined the court handling criminal, civil, and family matters is that you start to see a lot of the same issues uh, in terms of evidentiary questions. Uh, You start to see a lot of the same people dynamics. Uh, whether you're in a civil or criminal or family. And that experience in one area of jurisdiction helps you be a better judge in the other area of jurisdiction. And I'll give you a prime example. Domestic violence was becoming a huge issue to deal with in the 1990s. And so there was a lot of training for criminal courts about how to handle domestic violence sentencings. Well, I could start to then recognize domestic violence dynamics in the family court, which I might not have recognized. In a lot of instances, you had uh, spouses who were uh, very much under the thumb and really didn't know how to communicate that. But as a, as a judge who was familiar with domestic violence, I was able to take that into account, ensuring that there was an equitable settlement in a divorce case. If you're in one jurisdiction, you may not pick up on some of those nuances. So I, I thought it was a very valuable experience. And Uh, When I went to the Court of Appeals in 1999, I was able to bring a lot of that experience to bear in in reading the transcripts that we were given and helping my colleagues who had not been trial judges 
understand what it was the trial judge was doing and exercising his or her discretion uh, because it was there in the record. And if you'd never been a trial judge, you might not pick up on some of the nuances of the transcripts. So I thought the trial court experience was very valuable to me in helping me be a very effective uh, appellate judge. And, and I served on the Michigan Court of Appeals uh, from 1999 until May of 2017 when I was appointed to the Michigan Supreme Court. And so when I joined the Supreme Court in 2017, uh, as my former colleague, who was then Chief Justice Steve Markman, said, I was uh, simultaneously the junior justice and the senior judge, because I had more judicial experience than anyone else on the court at that time. And how common is that? To me, it always surprises me when I hear about appellate judges that don't really have trial court experience, but it seems like it's fairly common. Was it unusual for you to have that much trial experience before joining the Court of Appeals? I think that it was not unusual with the founding of the Court of Appeals in the 60s. But as you got a court that became more mature and it grew in size, you started to have judges who never had served on a trial court bench, but maybe they'd been in a prosecutor's office or with the attorney general's office, or maybe they were uh, an extensive litigator. And I don't think that's a bad thing to have diversity of experiences on the court. It really helps when you're sitting in those three judge panels and talking about things from the perspective that you had in your prior role. It helps your colleagues understand uh, the nuances a little bit of the case before you. And, and, And that is important to have an understanding of the nuances when you're at the appellate court. Because you're thinking not just about that case, but about the next case and the next case. And let me ask you this. How did it compare going from being a trial judge to being an appellate judge? Obviously, they're very different, but how did one compare to the other? I loved all three roles. The main difference between the trial court and the appellate courts is you're in front of people all the time as a trial Uh court judge. Uh, You're dealing with litigants. You're dealing with other lawyers. You're dealing with members of the public when you're selecting juries. You have multiple scheduling issues that you and your office specifically are handling. Uh, Emergencies come in much more frequently at the trial court than they do at the appellate court. So it's a very active, very present kind of job. And trial attorneys who understand how busy they are, it's just as busy for the trial court judges because they're managing hundreds of cases and they have to keep them all straight. They have to keep the cases moving uh, because delay is a denial of justice. At the appellate court, we have much more time to think about the cases, although not that much more time. The volumes are incredible at the appellate courts. So as my former colleague and current colleague, Maura Corrigan, Maura is uh, of counsel at Butzelong. She used to say every session of court, we're reading War and Peace to get ready. And so there is a ton of reading at all levels of the court, but at the appellate court, especially because you're really trying to analyze the fabric of the law and apply the rule of law in a way that makes sense, not just for the present case, but for the next case. So it's it's very different. You're isolated from the lawyers. You only see the lawyers once a month at oral argument. And it's just a very different existence. You spend a lot more time with your law clerks talking about the particular outcomes of the case 
that you're that you're dealing with, and there could be multiple outcomes depending on which way you think the law is being directed to go. And those are the fun things that that happen in chambers in discussions with your law clerks or with your colleagues. Well, I've heard it compared to a monastic existence. Does that ring true to your experience? It does, and it can. One of the things that I did to avoid that at the Court of Appeals in particular was stay active with nonprofit organizations. I've served on a number of nonprofit boards over the years and particularly gotten very active in the arts. I'm about to become the chair of the board at the Interlochen Center for the Arts in uh-huh. northern Michigan, about 13 miles south and west of Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, Interlochen is uh, an amazing institution yeah. for the arts. Uh, my daughter actually graduated from there uh, as an academy student after having attended several summers at camp. And that's why I decided to get involved because of the uh, tremendous impact it had on her life. And then I currently sit as the secretary of the board of the, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, uh, which is a fabulous orchestra and represents Detroit very well. That's wonderful. And you yourself, are you a musician? I'm an amateur singer. I sing bass in my church choir, uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Plymouth, under the direction of Dr. Jerry Smith, who's, I think, 84 or 85. Looks like he's 70. He's, he's an amazing conductor with amazing uh, repertoire. And many of the choir members studied with him at Bentley High School in Livonia and have stayed with him in whatever choir he's conducting. And several of those people have sang professionally. So I, I get to sing with some amazing singers on Sunday, and we're actually going to be back in person this fall. We've not been able to do that. And years ago, I played piano and clarinet. I, I don't play the piano anymore except for to help myself prepare uh, for our, our choir sessions. And I don't play the clarinet at all, but I keep it in my closet to remind me that I, that I played once. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forts Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forts Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com or call 844-730-4066. On the Litigation War Room, we like to zoom in on an interesting case or an interesting group of cases that the guest has handled. Now, in your case, um, you've had 26 plus years of judicial experience, and I know you presided over any number uh, of interesting and important cases. One case I wanted to talk to you about today is Papazian v. Goldberg, also known as Inri Mardigian Estate. I hope I'm saying those names correctly. I think everything was right, I think, but it's Mardigan, is, I believe. is Mardigan. Okay. 
I'll let you fill us in, but I understand that this was a case that involved a, a will and a trust that granted something like $14 million to an attorney and his children. Is that about right? And can you tell us a little bit about the, the background, what gave rise to this case? That's correct. And that wouldn't be anything of note, except for the will and trust was drafted by the attorney who received that wonderful bequest. And so there rose the, uh, the interesting issue in the case. Our Michigan rules of professional conduct preclude a lawyer drafting a will and a trust in which he or a family member or she or a family member would take from that will or trust. And so what should have probably happened is counsel said to his longtime good friend, thank you for wanting to leave this money to me and my children. Let me get this other lawyer over here to draft the will and trust for you. Instead, he drafted it. And after the decedent's death, the uh, a lawyer attempted to introduce the documents that he'd prepared for, uh, for probate, went to the probate court, wanted to introduce the documents, wanted to be appointed personal representative, and family members of the deceased uh, objected to this process. You had um, the decedent's brother, uh, several of his nephews, several of his nieces, and his longtime girlfriend all said, hold on. This seems to violate public policy because it violates the Michigan Code of Professional Conduct. Right on point. Tells lawyers not to do this. And so the probate court considered all of the arguments, particularly the argument that this kind of gift was against public policy. There's pretty strong case law in Michigan that lawyers should not engage in transactions that are against public policy. And this particular gift where the lawyer drafted the document which provides a gift was seen as one against public policy in the Code of Professional Conduct. In fact, it reads, a lawyer shall not prepare an instrument giving the lawyer or a person related to the lawyer as parent any substantial gift from a client, including a testamentary gift. That's pretty straightforward. So the probate court decided that he or that it could not enforce the documents because they were violative of public policy. And that's how the case came to the Court of Appeals and was assigned to a panel in which I was presiding. And what made the case very interesting is all of the case law dealing with public policy pronouncements involved contracts in which there was some level of self-dealing involving the lawyer who drafted the contract. And in those instances, the court said, well, we're going to void this contract because of public policy. But here you have a will and a trust, which is different than a contract. In a contract, you have various parties who reach a meeting of the minds. And they, they communicate their meeting of the minds through the language that they use in the contract. Well, in this instance, with a decedent, their testamentary intent is reflected by the language of the will or the trust. And it's very clear under Michigan law that when you're interpreting a will or a trust, you want to accomplish the intent of the testator. Right. And I'll just mention that that's the first thing that came to my mind, maybe not the first thing, but it came to my mind as I was reading the opinion and reviewing some of the background of this case is 
Well, sure. It seems pretty clear that this attorney violated the rules of professional conduct. And, and maybe the easy answer is to say, okay, well, the whole thing is just null and void. But then what about the wishes of the decedent, <laughs> right? Uh, if those were clearly expressed, you know, aren't you doing maybe injustice isn't the word, but you're not honoring the wishes of the decedent if you just nullify the, the will and the trust. I'm not saying it's an easy question, but, but again, I looked at it and thought, this is not one where there's an easy side you can err on one side or the other. Obviously, that's why it ended up uh, in the Court of Appeals. It really is, is not an easy question uh, to answer. And on the one hand, you can say that allowing attorneys to get away with this sets up future testators for abuse. But we had some guidance, fortunately, in my opinion, at uh, the Court of Appeals. There was a 1965 case of the Michigan Supreme Court called NRA Powers Estate. And the Supreme Court in that case grappled with pretty much the identical issue here. A will devising the bulk of the estate to a member of the family of the attorney who drafted the will and naming the attorney as an additional beneficiary was determined by the Supreme Court not necessarily to be invalid. There was an important question in determining what the testator intent was. And because of that, the court engrafted a presumption of undue influence on the part of the attorney because of the fiduciary relationship the attorney had with the testator and said, we're going to presume that you use undue influence to get this benefit. And now you have to prove through the introduction of evidence that that presumption should be overcome and that this really was the intent of the deceased. And when we found this case, and when I say we, my law clerk, uh, actually, she was an intern at the time, is one of your colleagues, Kristen Webb. Right, right. Uh, known Kristen for many, many years, uh, through first through her aunt, and then followed her career in law school. She clerked with me also at the uh, Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, but we, we had a great discussion about this and not only found the powers, but there's a clear difference between contracts and wills and trusts and the different policy questions to be considered. And ultimately, because of the fact that Powers was binding on the Court of Appeals, and because of the fact that all the public policy questions or public policy cases involve contracts, not wills or trusts, I decided and one of my colleagues agreed that we should follow Powers say there was a presumption of undue influence and send it back to the trial court for a trial. Uh, the colleague who dissented took the position that the Michigan Code of Professional Conduct had been adopted after Powers. It was adopted uh, by virtue of the, of the Supreme Court's administrative function, and therefore you should presume that Powers had been implicitly overruled to the extent of this public policy question. And I just took the approach that the Supreme Court did not say it was overruled. We can't imply that they have uh, overruled one of their own cases. We had to follow that case. And if the Supreme Court felt that powers was outdated, they were free to say so. And as a matter of fact, the family took an appeal to the Michigan Supreme Court. Little did I realize that by the time the case arrived at the Supreme Court, I would be sitting there as one of the justices. Right. So I was not able to participate in the case when it was argued at the court. 
Well, and that was a fateful turn of events, wasn't it? Very fateful, uh, because the court split equally in uh, analyzing the issue. Uh, Half of the court uh, agreed with my opinion that powers should control, uh, and part of their analysis and part of my analysis was that the legislature had since passed a statute governing testamentary documents, and in the passage of that statute, they engrafted a presumption of undue influence when fiduciaries might be advantaged by their relationship with the testator. And the part of the court that agreed with my analysis felt that that was consistent with powers, that we should honor what the legislature's intent was in passing this new act and send the case back for trial. And the other half of the court also agreed that powers applied, but they believed that powers should be expressly overruled and that the public policy concerns that were addressed in the Michigan uh, Rules of Professional Conduct ought to require a presumption that could not be overcome and that any particular will or trust or other testamentary document in which a lawyer drafted and provided that that lawyer with any kind of benefit from that document should be automatically void as a matter of public policy. So it it was uh, pretty much ended up the way as you would expect. Not everybody agreeing on what the right approach was, everybody agreeing that powers did apply here. And so as a matter of the doctrine of a lower appellate court following what the higher appellate court required, I think I did the right thing in following the powers decision and leaving it to the Supreme Court. And I imagine at some point in time, either the legislature or the Supreme Court will take up this issue again. Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. And your role was different on the Court of Appeals than it would have been on the Supreme Court in that you were deferring to precedent on the Court of Appeals, whereas the Supreme Court had the opportunity to consider whether it would overrule its its prior decision on point, the Henry Powers Estate case. Do you think the, well, I guess it's not majority. I was going to say the majority opinion because there was a 4-4 split, but the outcome was an affirmance in effect of your Court of Appeals decision. Do you think the Supreme Court got it right? I believe so. I am persuaded, uh, as I was when I when I wrote the Court of Appeals opinion, that Michigan statutes made it clear that you should give primacy to testator intent. And perhaps there could be some requirements engrafted that you had to maybe get some other people involved that the attorney was going to draft the will or the trust. Maybe you had to get some affidavits signed by witnesses to further reflect that this was the testator's intent. Uh, I don't know. There are a lot of things you could do, but it's clear Michigan statutes uh, want to give primacy to testator intent. So I think that the court was duty-bound to honor that, the, the legislature's clear intent in that respect. And again, like I say, the legislature can always come back and modify the statute to say that we're going to find void as, as against public policy any document which gives to a lawyer which is drafted by the lawyer. It's a very easy modification. I doubt if you would find much in the way of opposition uh, from anyone in the state bar. And that's ultimately where Justice Markman came down, at least that's how I read his opinion, is say what you will, this is ultimately a question for the legislature. Sometimes that ends up with results that we don't like. Former Chief Justice Robert Young 
when he would swear in the legislature at the beginning of a new term, was quoted as famously saying, be careful what you enact because we're going to apply it the way you enact it. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think that that's the role of the court. If the legislature enacts a bad law, that's on them. It's not for the courts to fix it. We're not going to fix it for you. We're not accountable to uh, to the people in the same way that, that you are legislators. So you better get it right before you send it to the courts. And I think they do for the most part. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, things come up that are not anticipated. And that's what makes uh, judging very interesting. The, the things that are unanticipated, which fit within the language of the law, the letter of the law. And how do you extend the law to circumstances that were not considered at the time the legislature enacted the particular statute, or for that matter, the people enacting a constitutional provision? One question, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but this was remanded to the trial court? It was. And do we know what happened on on remand? I heard through the grapevine that there was a settlement, which made sense. A lot of expenditure of resources on both sides with uncertainty. And it did make sense, I'm sure. I, I don't know what the the settlement amount was, but I'm sure that um, counsel was more than happy to give up some of his share <laughs> to keep a, a large part of it. Well, that's a, an extremely interesting case, and I really appreciate your reflections not only on the case, but on the respective roles of the legislature and the judiciary. Just a couple questions to ramp up here. One question I have for you that I know our listeners will all know the answer to, given your your vast experience on the bench, particularly as an appellate court judge and a Supreme Court justice, what does every lawyer need to understand about appellate advocacy, about winning over an appellate judge, either at the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court? It's, It's a great question. And I think the first thing I can say is to remember the audience and remember what their role is. Appellate judges do nothing but read briefs, think about the law, and write opinions. And their whole infrastructure is built to accomplish that function. So it is a waste of time for the lawyer to start arguing the facts of the case before an appellate panel, which has spent the last several weeks analyzing your brief, and in many ways thinking about, well, how does this case apply to the three other cases having similar issues that I just decided in the last three months. So the lawyer should understand that the appellate panel is thinking about how to place the facts of this case within the context of all the other cases that deal with similar issues of law. And what they're thinking about is the fabric of the law and the rule of law. And where does this case fit on the continuum? And they want to be consistent. So the lawyer should try to help the court realize where that lawyer believes the case fits within the continuum of the law. It's not so much about the facts and really about the law. And that's totally different than at the trial court. The trial court has unpublished opinions or published opinions that they're using to understand generally what the law is. And you're trying to persuade the trial court about the facts and what the facts are, and whether there's an issue of fact that should allow this case to go to a jury for decision, or if there is no genuine issue of material fact because it sits on the four corners of a prior case. So you're really more arguing facts at the trial court 
and you're arguing more fabric of law at the appellate court. That's such a fantastic insight. I think we do think of, obviously, appellate judges being more oriented towards the law you know, than the facts. But the idea of answering the question, how do we weave this into the fabric of the law, as you put it? Um, that is just such a, a helpful way to put it, as we as litigators try to understand, how do we get inside the mind of the appellate judge? And that's really helpful to think, well, that's kind of the larger project that they're engaged in. And how do we tailor our arguments to fit in with what they're trying to do? I think also the appellate lawyer has to really understand the record. There are times when knowing what the facts are help the court understand that it's on one side or the other of that continuum. That's where the facts matter. So you do have to know the facts. You have to know them intimately, but that shouldn't be the focus of your argument. At the trial court, you have to focus on the facts. First of all, you're trying to make a record. Uh, so that the appellate courts really can understand the totality of the case before them. And the appellate court will spend time knowing the record. They'll know what the transcripts were at the trial court, whether there was a trial or a hearing. They'll be familiar with that, and they'll have taken that into account in understanding where, in their mind, the case fits on the continuum yeah. of the law. So it's a subtle difference, and lawyers can do both, but it's one of the reasons why you see some very effective advocates who only do one or the other. Absolutely. Well, an even more important question for you, Kurt, is what font is the best font to uh, write an appellate brief in? <laughs> this is an enduring question. Uh, I think there was some uh, uproar recently, a recent spate of articles <laughs> about this. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy, whether you go Times New Roman, the, the tried and true, or Century or Garamond or anything else. Do you have any preference? I uh, work with a colleague who tends to use Century, and to be quite honest about it, when I was on the appellate bench, as long as it was clear and large enough, as long as the spacing was good, I was fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what mattered more to me was the clarity of the argument rather than the font font yeah. that was being used. Uh, but I, I I know that there's a debate about that and. After the number of years that I was on the appellate bench, I just really didn't didn't bother me that much. So I'm, I'm kind of deferring that question. Use the one that you think makes you makes you look the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true for everything, I suppose. Make it clear. Make it easy for the judge. Correct. And one more question: How does your experience on the bench help you in in your private practice? Well, one of the things that I like to do now, and I talk to my colleagues about this before they're preparing for oral argument, either at the trial court or at the appellate court, is thinking about what the judge or panel of judges will be thinking. How will they be approaching the case? If I were on that panel, how would I be approaching the case? And that helps me prepare the presentation that I'm going to make to whichever court I'm before. And it's different when I'm at the trial court level than if I'm at an appellate court. And one of the things that's critically important is reading the panel or reading the judge. You can tell if the trial court has heard enough. You have to get quickly to your points. And in fact, I wrote an article in the State Bar Journal with my colleague, Maura Corgan. One of our first points in the, in the article was get to the point, because there are a lot of cases the judges have. So you have to read the panel, 
at the appellate court, you'll know very quickly if it's going to be a hot panel and they have a lot of questions for you or if they pretty much know the case and they're sitting back and they're just waiting for you to be done. So if you have a cold panel, if you're comfortable with your briefing, you really just have to hit the high points and sit down. They've made up their mind. But if you have a hot panel, you have to really answer the questions that they're asking you. And don't assume that a question which appears hostile to you means that judge is hostile to you. The judge may be asking the question to try to persuade one of her colleagues that they have a particular point somewhat wrong. They're trying to get a vote. They may be trying to get a vote for you. So you always have to answer the questions as they're presented to you and answer them as you would as an advocate in the way that's most favorable to your position. Well, with that, Kurt, it's been great having you. Really appreciate the opportunity to hear about your your stellar career and your really interesting and useful insights on the law and on the practice of law and on appellate advocacy. Kurt, if our listeners want to find you, uh, how can they find you? Well, they can uh, always check out Butzelong's website, B-U-T-Z-E-L-L-O-N-G. And uh, they can email me at wilder at butzel.com. Or they can call my office, 313-983-7491. I also have a LinkedIn account under Curtis T. Wilder. I'm not the most prolific social media poster, uh, but I do uh, I do follow from time to time. And if you send me a message there, I'll be sure to get it. Well, again, thank you, Kurt. It's great to have you. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thanks, Max. Great to be here. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war rooms.